Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. So we are of good courage. And, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is God's word. Thank you for reading. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this new morning, for this new day, to open your word together, to hear what you have for us, to hear this guarantee that you've made for us of resurrection. God, help us to plant our hope on that guarantee and to move us to action in light of that guarantee. May my words be pleasing to you. And may they be helpful to the people here at Westgate. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I have not had the experience of purchasing a new home, but I have been told and I have seen that it can be emotionally taxing. Right? It can take weeks or months to find a home, and then when you find one that you like, you're not even sure you'll get it, given how quickly things have been selling lately. Yet even if we haven't gone through the process of buying a home, we know what it's like to long for a home, especially if your current address is the cause of grief. What comes to mind are people who'd like to own their own place because the building they live in is run by a landlord who doesn't care about the property. They just want their check. What comes to mind is someone who has their own own home, but it's run down and it's always in need of repair. What comes to mind are refugees longing to start over somewhere new because their home country is in turmoil. These are people who long for a new and better home. Paul, in this passage, gets more personal than any of those examples. Our own bodies can be the cause of groaning. And so Paul captures our longing for a better residence, that is, a better body. By doing this, Paul gives his readers hope and assurance for what's to come, while also telling us that how we live right now matters. Here's what I aim to show you today. In light of our God-guaranteed future, we should live to please Christ in the present. In light of our God-guaranteed future, we should live to please Christ in the present. So that statement is composed of two parts because the passage is composed of two parts. Verses 1 to 5 
are about this God-guaranteed future. And verses 6 to 10 are about pleasing Christ in the present. But before we get into this, let's back up for a second. In chapter 5, Paul is building off of chapter 4. He has just finished saying that our outer self is wasting away. We will face momentary affliction. And the things that are transient, uh, but the things that are unseen are eternal. All of which is purposed to prove, as he opened, that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So as chapter 5 opens, Paul is still committed to showing us how the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. By saying, even our own bodies, our resurrected bodies, are not dependent on us, but on God. We can't even make guarantees about our own bodies, but God can. Here, what Paul does is instill hopefulness in the resurrection so that his readers will be prepared to face the affliction in a broken world. So let's turn to verses 1 to 5 and see how he does this. The main idea of verses 1 to 5 is very simple. It reads like this. For we know that we have a building from God. We know that we have a building from God. That's the basic idea of this first section. Everything else in verses 1 to 5 serves to explain or complement that truth. We know we have a building from God. The whole verse says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So to start, we notice a clear contrast between the earthly home and the heavenly eternal building, which is quite in accord with what he's been saying already. Paul has already made these sorts of contrasts. In verse 1, Paul also speaks of, one, the certainty of this building, and two, the construction of this new building, this new body. This is a small detail. We won't stay here long, but Paul says, we have a building from God. And he's speaking in the present tense, which I would imagine would read something like, we have right now a building from God. But that's hard for us to make sense of. And what Paul's doing is using some grammar to speak of the certainty of what's to come. Here's how one scholar puts it. Paul's use of the present tense expresses his conviction that this future possession is so certain that he can regard it as already a reality. What Paul's doing here makes me think about something I say when I play basketball. I say something like, we got this. We'll win this. <laughs> of course, when I say that, I don't really know if we're going to win it. I have a degree of confidence that we will win it, that we will do it. Uh, but I'm not 100% certain. Paul really knows the outcome. He can really say, we've got this. We have this. Don't doubt this. We know what God has for us. That's certainty. But not only does he talk about certainty, he also talks about construction. This new body is unlike anything we know, no matter how healthy we are. Paul tells us this new body is not made with hands, it's eternal, and it's in the heavens. In other words, it's better. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Peter says that we hope for what is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. 
Paul's words fit quite nicely along Peter's. Our resurrected bodies are part of that imperishable hope that we look forward to. Now we have to ask a question, why would we want this sort of new building? Verses 2 through 4 give us an answer. Paul knows that part of life in these bodies includes groaning. He mentions it twice. Have you experienced groaning? How does your body cause you to groan? And let me suggest three broad reasons why we might groan. Could be age, could be illness, it could be persecution. So let's start with age. Over time, our bodies age. And when they do, we groan. Some of you may have heard that question and thought, I can't get out of bed without groaning. (laughs) Age, over time, things stop working like they used to. Our knees ache, our back aches, our vision gets worse. It's like once we get out of college, it's not too long before we regularly feel the effects of time on our bodies. So very simply, age is the cause of groaning. In addition to age, something all of us know, especially throughout this pandemic, is how illness causes groaning. No matter what age you are or where you live or how healthy you are, you will get sick. It might be as mild as a cold or as severe as cancer. And within that spectrum, a lot of groaning can take place. And since we don't live in a bubble, Even if we don't personally experience the hardest parts of that spectrum, we can still see how painful it can be. We can recognize how illness causes groaning, even in others, even if it isn't our illness. And lastly, Paul also has in mind persecution. Remember our passage from last week. We can rightly infer that Paul's groaning stems from affliction, persecution, and being struck down. This is a man who is no stranger to suffering. Paul, no doubt, had the scars and bruises to prove it. So whether you're persecuted by people, afflicted with deterioration and illness, we all have cause for groaning. Yet in a paradoxical way, Paul's groaning is a purpose groaning, a hopeful groaning. When Paul speaks about groaning, it's not aimless. Look at verse 4. Paul says, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I think most everyone would agree that the cause of groaning is sin. Maybe not everyone would call it sin, but at the very least, there's a recognition that pain isn't right. This is not how things are supposed to be. Paul agrees, but he goes further than this. Not only is groaning caused by sin, but his groaning is informed by promise. Paul acknowledges that the body is a source of pain, but his hope is not that we would be disembodied. In these bodies, as a result of age, illness, and persecution, we groan. But Paul's hope is not getting rid of our bodies. There were ancient heresies that still creep up today that say the body is bad, and the spirit is good. The body is bad, the spirit is good. The body is a prison for our souls, and upon death, our souls are liberated. That's not Paul's hope. Instead, Paul's hope is that what is mortal 
may be swallowed up by life, that something better would take its place, that we would be further clothed, as he says. To pass, excuse me, to press his language a little further, if you have tattered, uncomfortable, even harmful clothing, it's good to take it off. But if you only take something off, then you're left naked. You need something better to put on. And that's what the resurrection is for us, to be further clothed with better bodies. Now watch this, verse 5. Paul ends this section as he began it, talking about certainty. Here he delivers a note of resounding assurance. He brings this back to God. And to capture the movements Paul makes here, let me sketch it out for you real quick. In chapter 4, Paul says, The surpassing power belongs to God and not us. In chapter 5, Paul says, We have a building from God. Now, in the end of verse 5, Paul says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. In sum, God possesses the power, God provides the building, God prepares us for resurrection, and God himself is the guarantee of all of it. So God, 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 God. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> you can't come away with different conclusions from that. And consider that last one for a second. For Paul to say that God himself is the guarantee is significant. Other translations might say the Spirit is the pledge, that he's the down payment. One scholar likens this guarantee to an engagement ring. Just as a ring is a pledge to marriage, so the Spirit is God's pledge for resurrection. Yet unlike earthly engagements and promises, God's pledge here is exceedingly, exceedingly secure. As Christians, we know that if God says he will do something, he will do it. He's proven it. We can read about his faithfulness to his people throughout the Bible. So when God not only says that he will do something, but puts himself down as the guarantee that it will happen, we should have all the more confidence in his commitment to see it through. This is a God guarantee. It's not like other guarantees. Other guarantees come with some fine print. You know what I mean? You might go and buy a new laptop that comes with a lifetime warranty, guaranteed. Excellent. But then you look at the fine print. It says, this warranty covers the life of the product. All right, what does that mean? The warranty only covers however long the laptop decides to live? That can't be it. So you keep reading, and it clarifies, oh, this warranty guarantees repairs for life, but it only covers breaks and spills in the first 90 days. <laughs> also, it won't cover repairs if the company stop making the parts or they go out of business. Okay, so there are some guarantees being made there, but they're made with limits. God's guarantee is not like that. There's no fine print with him. There's nothing to hide here. It's just the opposite. Paul wants us to know who's making this guarantee and how he, God secures it. Remember, God, 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 God. 
It's being very clear about who he's talking about, what's going to be done. And why does all of that matter for you and for me? Because we will all face times that will make us groan. And when we're in those moments, we can plant our hope on this guarantee, this promise that we will be further clothed by resurrected bodies. So groan. You have permission to groan, but groan with God, groan towards God, groan with longing for what he's promised. Of course, Paul has more to tell us. In this first section, Paul provides us this future God-guaranteed resurrection. In this second section, Paul gives us another future guarantee, a future guarantee which is a basis for present action. Again, one to five, God-guaranteed future. Six to 10, a purposed present. What's that purposed present? To please Christ. So six to 10 is where we're moving. Now, as we get into this section, I want to start with an illustration. Let's pretend we all have a common friend named Dave. Not to be confused with any Dave in this room. <laughs> this is a different Dave, okay? Dave is our friend and coworker, and he has just told you that he has finally booked a flight to the Bahamas. And naturally, He's excited. He wants everyone to know that he's headed to the Bahamas. So he starts making his way through the office, telling folks, come July, I'm going south. And so you're excited for Dave. But then you notice that this trip to the Bahamas kind of takes over Dave's life. Now when you stop by his desk to talk about a work presentation, he keeps you there an extra 20 minutes to talk about the Bahamas, what he's going to eat, what he's going to do. And then later, instead of answering your calls, you find out he's been sending people to voicemail because he's busy calling hotels. And then you're giving that work presentation, and it's very clear that although he's on the Zoom call, he's preoccupied with something else. And sure enough, when it's Dave's turn to share his screen, you see he's got like 10 tabs open, shopping around for bathing suits and snorkeling gear. <laughs> it gets so bad that you end up having to do Dave's work because he's so preoccupied with the Bahamas. Now you're taking his calls, you're helping his clients, you're stuck doing the presentations going forward. Now we know we shouldn't aspire to be like Dave, but what I've just described to you can be one way skeptics view Christians. There's a quote attributed to a Boston-based author, his name's Oliver Holmes, it goes like this. Some people, are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. Have you heard that before? Some people are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. And that estimation, the Christians, they're seen as, we're seen as overly preoccupied with paradise to the detriment of people in need right now. Uh, well, what do we say to that? Is that claim justified? There's a lot of ways we can respond to a claim like that. For example, we just hosted Rebecca McLaughlin, and in her book, Confronting Christianity, she provides a ton of data that would undermine a claim like that. But Paul has something to say about this too. Paul has a word for any Christian or skeptic who thinks, 
I don't need to bother with all this earthly stuff, these temporal issues, because God's just going to tear it all down and make it all new again. To that, Paul says, sure, you can take that route, but just know you'll have to appear before Jesus, and you will receive your due for how you lived your life. So while we place our hope and trust in God's guaranteed future, that shouldn't result in complacency. We're called to action. But why? Why do anything if the outcome is secure? If heaven is so great, why am I here? If the goal of resurrection is totally in God's hands, then what is my goal right now? Paul's answer, we are here to please Jesus. We're here to please Jesus. Paul's take is quite contrary to Holmes's. A correct heavenly-mindedness is concerned with earthly good. And what is that good? Uh, well, Paul doesn't get specific in this passage, but we can generally observe a progression. One that starts inward and then moves outward. So first he starts with inward. He begins with us, our hopeful disposition. He writes, we are of good courage. Look at verse 6 with me. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, excuse me, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Having just finished reflecting on God's guarantee, Paul cannot help but repeat, we are of good courage. Being heavenly minded brought Paul good courage. Because, verse 7, we don't see things like other people see things. Our good courage isn't rooted in the transient things. This good courage, as one of my professors says, is grounded in heaven. Grounded in heaven. And so Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, to be clear, Paul isn't suggesting that people walk blindly, to walk by faith is not to say we walk in darkness as if there's nothing to grasp. To be sure, there are things that are unknown to us. God's sovereign will is often unknown to us. However, as one scholar points out, we walk in light of revelation. We walk in light of promise with verses 1 to 5 in mind. We walk knowing we have, we have, we got it, a new and better building guaranteed by God. That's what God gives us to grasp on. That's how we walk. And with all that said, Paul himself admits, I'd rather be with Jesus right now than in this groaning body. And if we call ourselves Christians, then we should desire to be home with Christ. We do, no doubt, have the privilege of living in a point of redemptive history where the Spirit dwells Christians, right? And that is amazing. It's certainly part of a string of progressions that have been unfolding. One of the central themes of Scripture is God's intent to dwell with His people. There was the tabernacle, then the temple, then the incarnation of Jesus, and then the Spirit. But there's still more to come. The fulfillment of promise where what is unseen and eternal becomes seen and eternal. Where God will once again dwell with man, where no sun will be needed, as John says, because we will see Jesus and his glory will be the source of light. 
Knowing all of that produces good courage. But of course, we aren't at home with Jesus. We're here. So what are we to do? We focus on Jesus. And as we focus on Jesus, a natural outworking of this is that we do good now. Look at verse 9 with me. This is so good. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. If we can't be home with Jesus right now, we make it known to Jesus right now that we aim to please him. We make it our aim, our purpose, our goal to live for him. One author reflecting on this passage says, these words well summarize the Christian life. If you want to know what being a Christian is like, what this life is all about, here it is, to please Jesus. For Christians, this answers those fundamental questions we ask. What am I here for? What is my purpose? What should I be doing? Paul's words are a foundation for all of us. Any age, any season of life, wherever you find yourself, strive to please Jesus. The implication of this is that we should live a certain way. As one author puts it, if we hope to be conformed to Christ's glorious body in the next life, we must be conformed to his character in this life. In order to live a life pleasing to Christ, we need to know something about what pleases him. And our text this morning doesn't have a lot to say to us specifically about what pleases Christ. That's something we'll continue to notice as the letter unfolds. What's sufficient for us to note is something we brought up earlier, that future promise shouldn't foster present complacency. If complacency does exist in Christians, then Paul's words are a sobering corrective. That brings us to the climax of the passage, which is intentionally a sobering reminder to us. Clearly, the God-guaranteed promise of resurrection is a basis for action. We should want to please Christ out of gratitude for what God has done and what God will do. But Paul is not short of reasons for pleasing Christ. In verse 10, he gives us another one. We're going to have to appear before him and before his judgment seat and receive what is due for how we live our lives. Now, what is the judgment seat? The term translated as judgment seat could just as easily be translated as tribunal, which is worth pointing out because it contextually matters for Paul and this Corinthian church. In Acts 18, we read about one of Paul's journeys to Corinth. And as Paul was in Corinth teaching and proclaiming the gospel, he faced opposition. This is what Acts 18 says. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. The Jews of Corinth brought Paul before a Roman tribunal in an attempt to stop Paul from teaching and preaching the gospel. So this church of Corinth is especially aware of the opposition Paul faced. 
in the opposition they might face. And Paul, having just spoken of affliction and groaning, tells this church that you too will stand before a tribunal, not Gallios, but God's. Paul deliberately co-ops an authority they know in order to say the tribunal, the judgment seat you should care about most belongs to Jesus. I've stood before Gallio. I know what's that like. My concern is primarily standing before Jesus. It should be yours too. Now, we have to hold a couple things in tension here. In verses 1 to 5, Paul is clear about God's guarantee. For those who are Christians, there is resurrection to look forward to. Here in verse 10, Paul is giving another guarantee. He says, we must all appear before Jesus, where he will deliver an assessment on what he has done, both on what we have done, good and evil. And so for Paul, it's not a contradiction to say these two things. On the one hand, resurrection is God guaranteed. That's a hope. On the other hand, God will give an assessment on how you lived your life. One writer explains it this way. For Christians, this future tribunal is not one of condemnation, but evaluation. Evaluation. It's not as if verse 10 is the fine print. We establish there is not fine print. This isn't Paul saying resurrection is guaranteed for you unless you're not good enough. No, resurrection, heaven, eternity, none of that is dependent on us. Paul is simply pointing out that between now and heaven, we don't get to just live for our pleasure. We make it our aim to please Christ. We make it our aim to please Christ. From this passage, there's a number of questions we can ask ourselves. Do I genuinely long for heaven? Do I trust God's guarantee of resurrection? Do I walk more by sight than I do by faith? Those are all questions worth considering. But before closing, I want to consider one issue in particular, and this is something I have to personally work on. See, I know in my mind, my primary aim is to please Jesus. That is my life's purpose. That is your life's purpose. But it's not hard for my heart to twist things and make me feel like my primary aim is to please other people, to treat my relationships as if others will occupy that judgment seat and not Jesus. The last time I was in Orlando for class uh, in seminary, I had to preach for my class. And I had to preach the same message twice. And I was stressing a lot about doing this. Uh, what made it stressful was knowing that <laughs> who my audience is. My professor had something like 30 years of preaching experience. <laughs> I had preached like 12 times at that point. And my classmates, man, they were excellent, excellent preachers. And they read the textbooks. Like, they know, like, what should be in a sermon, the structures it should have. And so I was stressing out. And the day before I preached... Steph kindly was checking in on me and texted me, asking how I was doing. And I told her, I'm, I'm stressing about this thing I have to do. And she texted back two statements. She said, I know that it's hard, and audience of one. Audience of one. And I think that's a pretty good way of understanding Paul's words here. 
there's one person we aim to please above all the rest. One person's opinion that should matter most above all. One person who will give us the assessment in the end, whose assessment matters more than all the others. Which brings us to the final thing I want to say. Paul can speak of this guarantee, of this good courage, of this purpose for our lives because of one person. Every single thing Paul talks about here is dependent on Jesus, on the gospel, on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection enables our resurrections, why we can hope for it, which yet again speaks to the God-centered nature of this whole passage. In Hebrews 9, excuse me, we read of something similar found here in 2 Corinthians. I'll read verses 11 and 12 to you. This is Hebrews. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In Hebrews and 2 Corinthians, the expression not made with hands have different reference. In Hebrews, the author is talking about the temple where sacrifices were made. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about our bodies. But notice that one enables the other. Just Jesus entered a better tent, a temple, to offer a better sacrifice so that we could hope for a better tent, a better body, and be with him forever. So God's guarantee, God's guaranteed resurrection is made possible by Jesus. And before we stand before him, we should make it our aim to please him. So I'll end with how I started, my twofold statement. In light of our God-guaranteed future, we should live to please Christ in the present. In light of our God-guaranteed future, we should live to please Christ in the present. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, for your truth, and for this word, for this promise, for this promise that we can cling to when things get hard and when we're groaning. God, I pray that all of us would long for you more because of this word, that we would long to be with you, to be long to long for this new body that you've promised us and god help us between now and then to live to please you to please you in all that we do we ask this lord in jesus name amen